Welcome to the Socialista Podcast, a collection of stories from Las Vegas creatives. My name's Brianna, and I'm going to be your guide to the city of Las Vegas, where I will be unveiling the stories of all of our amazing creatives, makers, entrepreneurs, and community changers. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Socialista Podcast. I'm very excited to be bringing this episode to you from Hydrant Club, which is right across from Ferguson's downtown, where I typically record, but I'm super, super excited to introduce my guest here, Kathy Brooks, who is the owner, and as she likes to say, the chief human officer of the Hydrant Club. Thank you so much. Yeah. I love having you here, yeah, as do, as do all of the, I, I've told these guys, uh, you know, the four dogs that are with us right now, yeah. that they should... Uh, they should only speak when spoken to. <laughs> yes, yes. I uh, we don't mind uh, pets here. Yeah. We'll keep barks to a minimum. Yes. <laughs> no, yes. I thank you so much for allowing me to come here today my to actually pleasure. record. This gets me out of my element, and I'm super, super like in love with the place. Thank you. Like I told um, your your employees, uh, Pam. It feels like heaven. Like it really does. There's dogs roaming around and they're all so sweet. And, and there's real grass. Real and grass. Big trees. Yes. And it's a little oasis. Yes. We, we um, if you're familiar with the, the Joni Mitchell song where she talks about they, um, they paved paradise and they put up a parking lot. Yes. So we reversed <laughs> So we reversed it. We took a parking lot and we put a little paradise at the corner of 9th and Fremont Streets. I love it. It's, yeah. it's really like a fresh of, uh, it's a breath of fresh air because I mean, we're pretty commercialized in certain areas of downtown and it's it's building itself up but it's really interesting when you're walking down Fremont Street um like I would walk down from Ferguson's to Container Park a lot and walking by you see this big yellow hydrant fence with dogs running around and grass you're like what is this what is this magical place magic seriously (laughs) so I would absolutely love for you to talk a little bit about hydrant club for who Listeners who aren't sure, I'm new here. This is the first time we're meeting, so I would love to get the rundown. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you again for coming in. And since we are in a pretty soundproof space in here, should you ever have a windy day where you need some place to record, you are welcome to come back. I will take we you would up love, on that. We would love to have you. <laughs> we would love to have you. Anything to support the community. It's thank great to you. see, uh, really great to see you know, people paying attention to downtown. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the Hydrant Club. The Hydrant Club, uh, if you were to just walk by and look at it, you say, hey, it looks like a dog park. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is true. And dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So the Hydrant Club is at its core actually an educational facility. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like calling it a training academy because that makes it sound uh, – perhaps more formalized than it is. Sure. But it is an educational facility. So uh, my background is in canine behavioral study. Okay. Um, I do not call myself a behaviorist because I do not have a degree in animal or human behavioral sciences. Right. So clue, if you have somebody who's calling themselves an, uh, a canine or animal behaviorist, ask them from where they got their degree because if they don't have one, they're just putting words down. Yeah. Uh, but we, I do study canine behavior and have okay. for many years, specifically in urban environments. Nice. So the idea behind the Hydrant Club was to create a space to help people and their dogs acclimate to an urban environment and learn the ins and outs of how do you exist in a deeply urban space mm-hmm. 
which Las Vegas has never really had before. Right, yeah. How do you exist in that space in a way that is safe for everyone? First and foremost, the dogs, and then, of course, by derivation, the humans who are with them. Sure. We provide daycare services, so people who need to drop off their dog for a half day or a whole day while they're at work or doing errands or have things, you know, somebody coming to work on the house. Yeah. We do overnight boarding as we are sitting at the moment in what we describe as our sleepover lounge, which is designed to feel more like a home. So there's an actual bed for the human who sleeps overnight with the dogs to sleep in and... If a dog, uh, we have a puppy staying with us now, so there is a crate because there's a puppy being crate trained. Okay. And we have crates for dogs that like them, but otherwise you see there are beds and big armchairs yeah, and there's a there's sofa a in the other room. So for them to feel comfortable. things where they can feel comfortable, big flat screen TV, mm-hmm. wood paneling on the walls. Yeah. Um, it is. It feels more like a home. It does, yeah. Then it feels like a, you know, we're not a, I don't use the K word. Yes. Kettle. We don't use that word. Well, yeah, because I think that has a lot of, um, I mean, when you say the K word, kennel, you think of certain things, and I've definitely been to some, and you walk in, and it's not, it's not a, not as homely or Mm -hmm. uh, comfortable, so it's, this is really interesting to see, because to me, before a training facility or uh, a daycare area is definitely set up differently. Right. So you, since you've been to a kennel before, what you, when you walk in, what are the first two things that you usually notice? Uh, white walls, yep. uh, lots of barking. And I have been through some kennels before or doggy daycares. Cause I had a, a, my best friend from school, she used to work at one and I had, was able to walk back where the dogs were, were held and a lot of, uh, cages and very close together. And tip, that was, that's my realm of understanding mm-hmm. of so that. So noisy and stark, mm-hmm. institutional. Mm-hmm. What about smell? Do you remember just it smell- all? I feel like it just smells like wet dog generally. Right. Yeah. So what are you experiencing while you're sitting here right now? It, I feel like I'm at home. Cause like it doesn't it, smell. No, it doesn't smell yeah. at all. Yeah. Which uh, you would think like when you have a lot of dogs together who are running in, like running outside and mm-hmm. playing and, you know, introducing new dogs to each other. That's kind of like what you think. Like e- even my house, I let my dog outside. He come back inside. I'm like, wait, okay. It smells different. In here now. <laughs> and like nothing like that is here. So, and there are, you know, 10 or 12 dogs that are outside right now mm-hmm. playing and yeah. there's no, I mean, as noted, we're in a very pretty soundproof room, but yeah. but we're not hearing any real extenuating noises. Yeah. I mean, if a skateboard goes by, some dogs might bark, or another sure, dog comes sure. by, the dogs might bark. But for the most part, um, it's it's peaceful and it's it quiet. Is. I was actually I was slightly apprehensive when I first walked in because um, I think you have like you said like twelve or so dogs out mm-hmm. there and I love dogs but you know I try to be leery a little bit just because I have a big dog of my own mm-hmm. and sometimes I know smells can make dogs a little curious mm-hmm. and so when I saw the dogs on the fence I'm like oh okay hopefully they you know they're okay with me coming in I'm a new person but they were all so really nice well behaved just curious but like wanted the pets and you didn't get jumped on did not you? not at all no mm-hmm. you didn't get barked at either no exactly that mm-hmm. was exactly like they barked when they saw you first walking up and they're yeah, like oh and that was it. hey somebody news here yeah oh cool she's cool yeah all right you're very cool. mellow like yeah. like that yeah so dogs much like people when their needs are met and when they understand the rules of engagement mm-hmm. that's how they behave yeah and it's unless the dog has um some dogs have deeper behavioral scars because they've been through bad things yeah 
almost all of those dogs can be rehabilitated and behave just the way the dogs that you saw outside. Almost all. I won't say all. Right. Because they are living, breathing, kinesthetic creatures that have mm-hmm. individual experiences. And so you, um, I also don't say fixing a dog's behavior because the dog's not broken. Sure. Like yeah. I also, I don't say we're fixing the dog when we neuter or spay. We're altering yeah. the dog. Dog's not broken. Yeah. So right. <laughs> dog's not broken. Can't fix. It's not broken. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so like we that. do daycare. We do overnight boarding. Okay. We do education for the humans, education for the dogs. Uh-huh. And as you saw when you came today, there were some people out there with their dogs. Yeah, it was So nice. it's also a private off-leash park. So yeah. people whose dogs come here, and when we talk about membership, which I said with the, of course, air of course. quotation marks, <laughs> this being audio, I will paint more pictures with words. So um, a... a a member the membership is a dog who has passed through our application and interview process so we have a short application on our website that gathers some core information mm-hmm. contact information some very basic behavioral information and yeah. information about what the person is seeking then we gather all the dog's health records in advance we require a few more than your typical facility um, and i do that for a couple of reasons Um, The first is that we live in a city that has a lot of transiency within its residents. What's wrong? What's the matter, Bridger? Do you want to sit in her lap? Do you want to sit? So uh, daycare, overnight boarding, off-leash park space, uh, which also has adjacent indoor space. So too hot, too cold, too rainy, commotion on the street. Um, You have some place to take your dog. She's probably going to wait for you to pick her up. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you can grab her. Yeah. She's fine. Come here. Wanna come up? You are you're a big dog person, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I, the small dogs can take a minute to get used to. Hi. She's like, this is awesome. No, I this is me just saying this, but I really want to adopt um a little like probably a little chihuahua or some little Aww. mix. I've been looking, but uh the boyfriend won't let me get one, so <laughs> Well, when there's two humans in the house, everyone needs to be engaged in it. So yeah. maybe yeah. you need to, maybe you could foster. Yeah, I'd be interested. Because then get... he falls in love with it and you keep it. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> that's a strategy. Right? Yeah. Hi. Oh. I know, she's pretty perfect. <laughs> she's pretty perfect. I did not intend on getting a fourth dog and then that happened. I'm not allowed to walk into the shelter unaccompanied anymore because I tend to walk out with a dog. Another one. <laughs> Like, oh, look, that one looks like it fits with my group. I'll take that one. You know, so really, the when I came up with the idea for this place, I um, it wasn't something that um, this is not a business that I have thought about opening my entire life. I've always wanted to work or be around dogs. I just thought it would be more of I'm somebody who has a lot of dogs and has a lifestyle with dogs in it. Mm-hmm. But it didn't necessarily occur to me that um, – having a life where I worked with dogs and worked with their people, that that was a career thing. Right. You know, I'm a probably overly educated coastal person, born and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Oh, really? Born and raised along the main line of Philadelphia. That's amazing. Went to school in Chicago for college. So, yeah, so I, uh, I mean, I'm just kind of going into the kind of how all this happened, if that's... No. If that's all right? Yeah. No, no, definitely. I'd love to hear it. So I um, I came here on vacation in the summer of 2012 Okay. Uh, at the invitation of Tony Shea. Um, slight backstory before that. Um, so I grew up in Philadelphia, 
went to school in Chicago. Okay. Moved literally 10 days to the day after my graduation from Northwestern and moved directly to the San Francisco Bay Area. Wow. And what pushed you to do that? So a job. I actually got okay. hired right out of school to work at a small newspaper that was in Palo Alto at the time. I think okay. it's actually even still there. Um, probably morphed into different things, but uh-huh. I was the Peninsula Times Tribune at okay. the time. And uh, worked there for uh, probably about six months. Went from there to work at Metro Traffic Control. Traffic and weather together every 10 minutes. I did that for uh, almost two years, year and a half, mm-hmm. year and a half, almost two years. And then from there, um, after a series of events, I ended up working in public relations. And okay. um, the PR job that I secured was in what was then a very fledgling technology industry. Okay. I mean, the tech industry had been around for several decades at that point. Sure. Obviously, you know, Hewlett Packard existed. These large companies, Intel existed. Yeah. They were making chips. They were making semiconductors. They were making motherboards. They were making large machines. But consumer technology as a thing, consumer internet as a thing, didn't fundamentally exist in 1991, 92. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, and that's when I parachuted in. Okay. To Silicon Valley. So I started working in the tech industry. Our first clients were primarily Asian companies doing motherboards and chipsets mm-hmm. and really complicated multifunction devices yeah. and printers that fit in a room and, you know, really interesting but deep, deep core technology, which I didn't understand at all. <laughs> but uh, I found it fascinating. Yeah. And I found the people incredibly fascinating. And I found that I had a knack with my journalism background Uh to sit with a tech person, have them tell me all about what it was they were doing and say, oh, so your product does this and kind of translate that into consumer human English. Because at that time there there weren't technology reporters, Mm -hmm. but what there were were science reporters. So there were reporters at newspapers who were science columnists and some of them were former meteorologists and some of them were computer science majors in college and some of them were engineers and they were covering these weird things because they were interesting, but it was an offshoot usually of another beat. Um, Business sections didn't cover technology yet because the businesses weren't really, I mean, there was Microsoft. Right. But Windows didn't exist yet. Yeah. I mean, Windows didn't come to be until post-Netscape 1994, 95. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're looking at this really interesting time when consumer technology got a jetpack strapped on its back and just took off. And I was, you know, sitting in a front row seat getting to watch all of it and How cool. meeting remarkable people. I mean, people who, yeah. I mean, I remember meeting Andy Grove and just kind of like like you started Intel like did you know and meeting Steve Wozniak and 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 being like you and Steve Jobs started Apple you know so meeting these people who were changing the world because they wanted to do something important they wanted to help people's lives be better Mm -hmm. and um which is categorically different than the majority of the people I started encountering later in my in my time in the valley so the the truncation of a 22 or so year career in the tech industry uh was primarily in pr agency side for the first handful or so of years um i wended my way around to a company that was called tech tv um, zdtv when i started but it was a cable network 
dedicated wholly to the coverage of technology. Okay. First launched in 96, 97. I joined them in 98, kind of late 98, 99. Um, So by that point, I had been in the tech industry about seven or so years. Uh, I was there a couple years. Uh, After 9-11, there was a huge layoff at Tech TV, and I was one of the casualties. Because they don't forget what happened. Then the tech, the internet bubble burst, and the industry was eviscerated. And so um, I didn't leave Silicon Valley. By that point, I had been in the Bay Area Mm. long enough that it was home. And so I stayed, and I became a consultant, air quotation marks, uh, which essentially meant I was a gun for hire and did you know, if you said, what do you do? I'd look at you and say, what do you need done? Right. Um, as long as it, was, as it was on the communications, messaging strategy, media training, influencer outreach, public relations side of the fence. Um, I did some business development. I did a little bit of sales. Well, that everything. You know, I kind of did a little bit of everything, help people produce events. I booked speakers for events, all of that sort of thing. Wow. And that went from about, I would say, from departing Tech TV in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost entirely to my departure from the industry in 2012. There were uh, two different one-year stints where I had been working with a client um, that said, oh, well, we really want to hire you. Um, And and the the metaphor that I use is just because you have a great relationship with someone who you're dating doesn't necessarily mean that's the person you should marry. Mm -hmm. Right? And so I made made that mistake twice. didn't make it a third time which is good so first time was just a fluke second time was like a, oh yeah I guess I probably shouldn't do that and actually it was departing that that second job um when I made the decision I'm like you know what maybe it's not what I'm doing in the industry that's the issue maybe it's that I'm somewhere I'm not supposed to be uh-huh. so flash forward we're now in about 2010 and I'd started coming to this realization that what I was doing was not good for me in a lot of different ways. The lifestyle I was leading, um, the work I was doing wasn't really particularly fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just a lot of self-damaging behavior through that, you know, through almost the entirety of that time. And, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I got to a point where I looked, I was like, wow, okay, so um, this is what a bottom looks like. And so I'm going to stop digging here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, 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 just really take a good hard look at what I need to do, how I need to do it, and how I need to course correct to to try to be a happier, healthier person. Yeah. So how did that uh, that switch go off for you? Was it just these events leading up and you feeling like there's something else that you could be doing, or you need to you know kind of get out of that situation, or was it you know I don't want to say overnight thing because that's a rare. Yeah, it is rare. I mean, I mean, the good news for me is that there was no catastrophic event that really was like, wow, this is like, this is bad, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to be clear, I am talking about sobriety, you know, so I'm not like hiding behind any words here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, when I look back, which I, you know, now have the luxury of some time and some space, um, that I was doing something that I was doing work that wasn't particularly gratifying okay. to me, fully gratifying. Now don't, don't get me wrong. I love the people I worked with. I am so incredibly grateful for the, all the opportunities I had. I got to travel. I got to meet amazing people. I got to be part of some amazing projects and businesses with some truly stupendous human beings. Yeah. 
I don't regret a single moment of it. I really don't. And if it weren't for that entire trajectory, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known Tony Shea. And so when I did bump into him, you know, those years later, so where I am today is exactly a direct result of the path that I was on. So I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. But when I look back and I see, you know, had I been doing something that gave me more joy, would I have even been able to really, to really connect with it? Because I was, I was, I was battling some inner demons of my own. So I think that it was, you know, if this opportunity had come up earlier than it did, mm-hmm. I probably would have burned it to the ground like I burned a lot of other things to the ground. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, I got to the point that I got to and, um, you know, I'd like to say that there was a big aha moment or a bolt of lightning from the sky or a sunbeam <laughs> through a cloud and angels sang right. and I heard, Kathy, this is your path. None of that yeah, happened. Yeah. There was no burning bush. There was no, um, it was just kind of a, it was just kind of a slow roll on a Saturday afternoon in July of 2010 where it was like, huh, maybe I need to make some changes. Like it was really literally like that. Yeah. And um the good news, I had some people in my life who I could reach out to and talk to. And and I started along the path of, okay, so now I'm not going to make any major changes in the next couple of years. I'm going to focus on kind of getting like my head screwed back on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took a couple of years. I took a couple of years and really focused on that. And so that's in 2010, 2011. It's end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And I went on a almost three-week trip to Peru. Mm-hmm. I was there with 11 other people. Um, it wasn't a formal tour company. Okay. One of the, uh, Harlow, one of the people on the trip is uh, from Lima. And so she kind of helped us orchestrate things. But, you know, she would say, okay, everybody, we're all getting on this flight. Everybody go book their seat. Or, okay, everybody, we need to be on this train. And so everybody was responsible for booking their own stuff. Uh-huh. But she kind of spoon fed us what to do. We had a master spread Google spreadsheet with everybody's contact and where people are coming in and all yeah. that. And um, we, the the her wife at the time is a, a priestess in something called uh, the Thirteen Moon Circle. Okay. And it's uh, akin to it's in the kind of the pagan tranche of okay. of spirituality. And uh, is probably the best. I'm probably doing it a great disservice, but that's probably the closest derivation. And so she was, for all intents and purposes, you know, the spiritual guide. And so she sent us all before the trip um, a bit of a dossier um, to prepare for the trip. The gist of it boiled down to a small nutshell is to have a very clear intention before the journey, much like you would have an intention before a yoga class or you set your intention before a meditation. So to set, to move into it with a clear thought or a clear intent. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of questions around what is it you are seeking to leave behind? What is it you are hoping to find? And I did a lot of writing on the plane, a lot of writing, 19 hours of travel and I just wrote pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. And, and where I came to was that, um, I didn't know that I, I really, um, I needed to find something and I didn't even know what I was looking for. And for someone who's always been very type A, very driven, very planner oriented, very clear. Um, that's a, 
and and like a and a grown ass woman at the same time. It's it's um it's an unsettling place. Yeah, it could be scary to be and, yeah. and a little bit scary. Yeah. And so we go on this trip and. Uh, First couple of days in Lima, and we have Christmas in Lima, and it's great. And we all get on a plane, and we fly to Cusco, and we, you know, get in some cars, and we drive out to uh, Ollantaytambo, which is a town at the one end of the Sacred Valley, and we, you know, sleep there overnight, and we get on a train the next morning, and we take the train to Machu Picchu. Okay. And uh, so we are staying in a hostel. We didn't stay up on the mountain. We stayed at a hostel kind of down in the small village there. And okay. um, and it was pouring down rain. So what we chose to do was to do the bus that goes almost all the way up and then hike around up top. Yeah. And we did that on two. And then we took the bus back down. And then the next day we did a, a thing again. Um, and so on the first day, it was very misty. And uh, it's a very... The entire country of Peru, uh, I really desire to go back, not just to Peru, but to that part of the world um, and to really explore Central and South America mm-hmm. more deeply. Uh, I felt a real connection, a very similar connection, honestly, to what I feel when I go out to Red Rock. It's this sense that there is an ancient energy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people, many people who have come before you who were there and you can feel feel them you can feel yeah. their presence yeah like you said there's an there's an energy to it there's that a there's you can't a can't feel elsewhere no and there are places in the world that are like that and the truth is the energy is everywhere it just has more intensity i think exactly yeah in some places and uh so we decided we were going to do a little prayer circle before we hiked around the first day and so we find this little plateau off to the side and we kind of go off the main path and off to this little plateau and the mist is kind of rolling in and out, and it's a, a very, the greens are very deep blue-green, and the air has this um, very clean, clear, I mean, you're at altitude, so it has that clean, clear mountain air, and you can hear the roar of the river, the Urubamba River, which runs along, and you can hear the roar of the river kind of bouncing and cascading off of the canyons coming up so there's this ever-present hum that you feel uh, not dissimilar to the subway in new york actually <laughs> i noticed that i'm like huh kind of the same but very <laughs> different less peaceful maybe a little less peaceful <laughs> that has a little bit more of a brittle nature to it but this has this rolling kind of marrow of the bones sort of like you can feel it mm-hmm. in your bones and we got in a circle and and each person stepped into the middle of the circle and you know, offered something, a kernel of corn, a flower, um, a note, uh, something, and offered their words of what they're kind of setting their intent. Okay. And, you know, we're going around the circle, we're going around the circle, and it comes to me, and the next thing I know, I'm on my knees in the mud. And so I was raised in a Jewish household. Okay. And so, like, we don't kneel gen- generally in synagogue when we pray. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. There's a lot of standing and sitting, a lot of standing and sitting. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's not kneeling. You know, if there is kneeling or prostration, it's usually the rabbi or the, the counter. And, uh, and that's how that goes, and that's how I was raised. So, like, kneeling in prayer is not something that was ever particularly familiar to me. Um, but there I was in the mud um, on the top of a mountain in this misting rain praying in Hebrew. Like, and I don't even know, I don't even recall what prayers they were, but it was something very, very much connected to my childhood. I was raised in a home where we went to synagogue on weekends and stuff. And, okay. um, you know, I'm not a 
I'm not a religious person. I don't go to synagogue regularly. I have a huge degree of respect for uh, pretty much all all faith. Yeah. Faith being the operative word. And, you know, whether it's a church or a mosque or a synagogue or, you know, a dojo for some people who go for martial whatever yeah. it is, um, finding that connection. And, um, and I was weeping. And I was weeping and praying. And, uh, and I was like, all right. I don't know who's up there. Like, I don't know who you are because this is how I kind of have those conversations. Um, but I have no idea where I'm going. And I need like sister, sister needs a little bit of an assist. Yeah. So you lay the path in front of me and I'll walk on it. Just lay it out there and I'll, and I'll walk. Cause I know I'm on the wrong path. Mm-hmm. And you know, you get on this path and it's so well worn and it's so comfortable and it's safe and it's paved and it's known. Yeah. And you don't realize because you've been doing it for years that you've worn yourself down and there are these canyon walls on either side of you. So you're safe, you're protected, and it's there, but you can't even see how to get out. Like it's not, it's not even visible. So I, uh, that was the beginning of the journey and, um, there's some other things that happened on the trip where I, you know, I almost left in the middle of the trip. I'm like, this is getting too close. And, you know, you get to that vulnerable place. I can't handle this. And, um, and I, and I did stay for the whole trip and I came back from the trip with no clear, like, Hey, I'm going to work with dogs for the rest of my life. Yeah. Didn't happen like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But there was, there was clarity on, on two points. Okay. The first was that I had spent my entire career telling other people's stories for them or helping them tell their stories. But I hadn't really used my own voice. Yeah. yeah. My voice, my story, my experience had never really been part of the makeup. And that it was time for that to happen. So that was one lesson that was very clear. And that the other was that the work that I was intended to do, like 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 why I'm on the planet, is to is to help people see themselves in a way that they might not have seen themselves before. Now, some people might say, well, why don't you go to school? You can be a psychologist, you can be a psychiatrist, you can be a counselor, you can be a life coach. None of those things resonated for me. True. They, I mean, there's so many ways that you can you can set on that path to help others, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be in a, a clinical way or, nope. you know, sitting in a, in a chair. No. Nope. You know? And none of those things resonated for me. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I had somebody say to me last year, you know, because I was very involved in the last election cycle. I did a lot of, you know, canvassing and phone banking and cool. just okay. kind of a lot of volunteering with different campaigns for different, yeah. you know, ballot measures and candidates and all of that. And um, and I had someone say to me, well, have you thought of running for public office? And I just I laughed. And I said, so um, I'm pretty sure with some of the backstory, I mean, although I guess today... Pretty much anybody can get elected today, so I guess it could happen. Um, but um, I don't wear my politics too broadly. Um, the, the point, the, not a political conversation, but the point being, there are people who are called to public office. Yeah. I am not one of them. Not my thing. Not my thing. And I sit with it and I think about it. And like, that's what I do today. I think about those things. So I come back from the trip and I was working for a startup at the time. And uh, this was one of the year-long thing you know the things that I had told you about and and um fast forward to May and the company which was an Israeli-based company 
that was thinking about opening an office in the United States. So that was kind of like, that's what my existence was for. Yeah. And, um, and I, and they ended up, things ended up not working out for a lot of different reasons. So it ended up not working out. And that was in the first week of May of 2012. And a couple of weeks later, I was already scheduled to go to a conference, a tech conference. Like it was paid for, it was done. They're like, you know what, just go anyway. Yeah. Like this is your parting gift, go to this conference. I'm like, okay, well, it'll be like a vacation. And so I went and because I was surrounded by these incredibly brilliant people, um, who have done a lot of different things, I thought, well, these people are really good people to ask about, like, maybe what should I do when I grow up? And Tony Shea was one of those people. And so I I was standing in front of the hotel. He was actually getting ready to leave the conference and was waiting for his ride. And I was standing there with Truman, my big guy. <laughs> and uh, we're both standing there with a cup of coffee. And I said to him, I said, so I'm done. Like, I'm done with the tech industry. And I have no idea what I'm going to do next, but I have an idea. And I had this idea for a consulting business, different, same thing, different angle. You know, okay. it was really, when I look back on it, yeah. same thing, but different because I was in the rut with the walls and I couldn't see any different. Sure. And, and that's when Tony looked at me and said, well, why don't you come visit us in Las Vegas this summer? To which I replied with a snort. Tony, that's the stupidest fucking idea I've ever heard in my entire life. (laughs) Why on earth? Hell, hell no. Like, well, first of all, why on earth would I go to Las Vegas? Which I said with like, I'm pretty sure I said it with a sneer and a more than a little dripping derision in my tone. Um, Why on earth would I go to Las Vegas on purpose? Sure. Like I go there grudgingly for conferences a handful of times a year. I come home, my clothes smell like smoke. Everything has like the like the essence of like booze and cigarettes all over it. I'm exhausted. I always lose my voice. I come home sick. Like it's a shithole. It's a shithole. Why am I going to go for this? And he goes, look, we're doing this thing. Have you heard of the downtown project? And I said, no, I have not. And so he told me about what the downtown project was, which in the spring of 2012 was a fledgling idea, a very audacious idea with a few little things that had started to percolate. And, uh, and he said, well, why don't you come? We've got these condos that we've got set up as free hotel rooms. You know, you'll come and spend however much time you can spend. We'll find a swath of time. You tell us how long you can stay and we'll figure it out. We ask that you give back to the community while you're here. Set up some office hours. There's a couple of coffee shops, maybe set up some office hours and offer PR advice to some local entrepreneurs. Maybe we can set you up to give a talk. We do, we're doing this like downtown series of speaker we're doing a speaker series so maybe you could do a talk you know about storytelling or or something because I was a little bit on the speaker circuit in the tech industry on storytelling and brand and personal story and personal story as part of your thing because that's what I help people do yeah like how do you find who you are and make who you are and what you do I'm not saying live live to work I'm saying make the work that you do authentic to who you are because mm-hmm. the, the the temperature it will have the texture that it will have will be more meaningful yeah. not to everybody but to, to the people who connect with it sure. 
And I was like, well, I don't know, it's Las Vegas. Las Vegas. What the fuck am I going to Las Vegas for? It's like, it's like you're inviting me to the surface of the sun. Right. And then you're going to, I'm going to get out of my car and you're going to put a hairdryer in my face. Like, what kind of <laughs> schmuck goes to Vegas in the summer? And he says, you know, look, you'll, you know, we'll put you somewhere you can bring your dog. Oh, well, Truman's invited. Well, Truman's invited. <laughs> Perk up a little bit. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a consultant. I'm in between gigs. You know, a free vacation would be nice. So I uh, I said, okay. So I drove to L.A. I spent a week in L.A. with a friend there and hung out poolside doing some work and got in the car and drove out here uh, August 1st, 2012. And I was here for 10 days. Uh-huh. And every day that I was here, because I was walking around with a 65-pound, large, shaggy, looks like something that Jim Henson might have created, regal <laughs> creature. Um, everybody stopped, and what kind of dog is he? And where are he from? And, and people thought I lived here because I'm here with an enormous dog. And I met people with dogs. And well, where do you take your dog? And we, all the dogs we met were deeply under-socialized. They didn't know how to walk on a leash without pulling. They didn't know how to sit quietly in a coffee shop like a dog would walk in and then any dog that was in there would go crazy as opposed to dogs just being able to come in and out. You couldn't pass another dog on the sidewalk. You couldn't get into an elevator with another dog. And there was no place to let your dog off leash to play. Yeah. Not without getting in your car and driving to it. Right. There was no place to buy really good dog food without getting in your car and driving to it. There's no place to bathe your dog without getting in your car and driving to it. I'm like, well, if you're creating an urban, densely populated, walkable, community-oriented downtown, you need stuff. Mm-hmm. Because people with dogs walk. Because they have to. Because yeah. the dogs have to go outside to go to the bathroom when you live in an apartment. You can't just open the door and let them outside. Right. So, you know, over the course of 10 days, you know, all these conversations about what might a dog community look like? And what might those offerings look like? Oh, well, you guys could do this. And you guys could do that. And, oh, well, you could do this. And you could do this. And you could do this. And you could do this. All like, here's some ideas. Here's some ideas. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to my last night in town. It was a Wednesday night, and I was on my way to meet some friends uh, at this you know tech event that was happening at the time in this room upstairs of the Beat Coffee Shop where um, where Eureka now sits. Yes. Okay. So that used to be the Beat Coffee Shop, and upstairs were all the little offices and stuff. Okay. And so in one of the conference rooms upstairs, they did this kind of regular little tech meetup. And I get in the elevator at the Ogden where I was staying, and I am not with Truman. He's, you know, watching TV in the condo. <laughs> and I, I get in the elevator, and I bump into a, a fellow by the name of Zach Ware, who had been a Zaponian, who at that time had started working with the Downtown Project. And he said, uh, hey, Kathy, so how's it going? And how's your trip been? And how's Truman Mike did? And I'm like, oh, it's great. And we're, we're chit-chatting and like here just I'm sharing some of the things that I had thought and we walk out the front door of the Ogden and he kind of gestures kind of across the street kind of waves his hand and just says you know we're thinking of that lot over there we're thinking that we might make that into a little dog park and throw down some grass and put up a fence and I launch in like about 0.02 seconds I launch into I, I get on a soapbox hard mm-hmm. and I launch into this soliloquy of no, you're not, and let me explain to you why that's not going to work. You can't just put up a fence and put down grass and throw dogs into it that don't know how to be with each other and expect that it's going to be okay. Yeah. 
It might be. Might. It might be. Yeah. And you know what? Most of the time it will be. But you only need to be wrong once. And that one time could mean a death of a small dog, a grave injury of a child, a serious injury of an adult. Mm -hmm. Like, it is serious stuff. Dogs in an urban environment aren't normal. It's not normal. It's not where they're intended to be. Definitely. And we have to be responsible stewards. And Las Vegas was not... The inception of Las Vegas was not urban. This was Native American land, right. turned ranch land, reverse engineered into, you know, a den of iniquity playground in the desert where people live, Yeah, where there's a lot that happens. But the original urban planners were ranchers, wide streets, ranch style homes mm-hmm. shrunk down size wise on parcels of land that replicate what they knew which were large ranch houses on larger tracts of land. Right. Horizontal living. You might know your neighbor over the fence, but you don't live on top of them. Sure. And it is very different. Yeah. It is very different. And suburban and rural dogs are notoriously poorly socialized. Notoriously poorly socialized. So, So I finished that and he said, well, I said, so here's what you need to do. You need to create a space that is... A velvet rope for entry. You need to screen the dogs before they come in to make sure they have the skills they need and that the owners have the skills they need to be successful. And if the owners don't have skills or the dogs don't have skills, you need to have a mechanism through which you can give them those skills Mm -hmm. so that they can be in that environment safely. Yeah. And then you're going to need other stuff. Like people are going to need daycare and people are going to need to board their dogs and people are going to need a store to buy their stuff. Right. People are going to need to bathe their dogs. They're going to need a park to hang out in. They're going to need social events. Yeah. So you should do that. And he looked at me and said, that sounds like a really good business idea. I said, yeah, it probably is. He said, well, have you met Don Welch? I said, no, but I've heard his name all week. So Don Welch was at the time the individual who was in charge of the small business team of the downtown project. Okay. So he was the guy that if you had a small business idea and you know, your proposal went into the mix, it ended up on his desk. Okay. And he would, with the team, review, is this a business in which we're going to invest the chunk of money of the downtown project funds that are earmarked for small owner-operated businesses, mm-hmm. restaurants, clothing boutiques, that sort of thing. And he said, well, I'm on my way to meet him over at the downtown cocktail room. Why don't you come? I'll introduce you. So this is the point where I actually neglected to mention kind of the second most amusing part of my conversation with Tony, which was after the whole come to Vegas on vacation thing. And he said, you'll do this, you'll do this, kind of, you know, you'll do some office hours, whatever. You'll come to the Zappos all hands. And then he said, in between serendipity will be your guide. So um, that sounded a lot like trying to do retirement planning by playing the lottery to me uh-huh. because that was my understanding of serendipity was that it was happenstance yeah but that's not actually what serendipity means because I'm a word nerd like journalism background yeah. nerdy girl so I looked it up and what'd you find serendipity an aptitude for making desirable discoveries by accident how beautiful is that so it means, and essentially what I extrapolated that out to mean is when you 
when you remove your attachment to outcome, really magical things can happen. So the entire week that I had been here, the 10 days I had been here, every conversation led to another conversation, which would then lead to a chance conversation, which led to another conversation, Mm -hmm. which led to that elevator ride. Because the reason I was going out that night to meet those people where I was meeting them, when I was meeting them, was because of a conversation from a few days before. Right. And if I hadn't been in that elevator at that time, I wouldn't have bumped into Zach. And if I hadn't have bumped into Zach, I wouldn't have been introduced to Don. Isn't that so interesting? And when I talked to Don about the business idea, he said, so I hear you have an idea. And I gave him a 30-second overview. He said, that's a great idea. Is it a business you'd move here to run? And without hesitation, I said yes. Wow. And then I kind of paused a minute. And I was like, who just said that? <laughs> was that me? Was that me? <laughs> and, uh, and six months later, that's exactly what I did. Wow, six months. February 2013. Packed up, packed up. I retain a footprint because I, I actually have training clients in the Bay Area, so I rotate through there pretty regularly. Uh-huh. I've got a, I had actually taken on a roommate in my apartment in San Francisco prior to all of this happening anyway because I... I wasn't around a lot. Money was tight. I found a roommate who travels a lot. I traveled a lot. It was perfect. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of set up perfectly for me to me to be the roommate who was around less. Um, and we, that's an arrangement that we actually still have today. Um, and so what's interesting is, you know, I I never could have told you that I'd be here. You know, certainly not in Las Vegas. And here's the part of the story that, so like all of that is well and good and like, but the truth, the real truth of the story is that until about a year ago, I had one foot in and one foot out. I was here operating a business, uh-huh. but I wasn't here. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So there's a difference between living in a place and living on a place. Mm-hmm. And I saw that a lot in San Francisco when I first got there, which was the people who um, got to San Francisco and immediately steeped themselves in the history of the Bay Area and wanted to know all about like where the heritage and the history came from. And then there were the people who were interested in tearing things down and putting up another Starbucks or making it exactly like where they had been before. Sure. And uh, I call them locusts. And... I had prided myself when I was in the Bay Area in becoming, you know, and kind of becoming part of it. But the truth is, is that I didn't really, I didn't really, because of all of the other things that I kind of had going on in my yeah. life, I didn't really, I couldn't connect with anything. Le- I couldn't connect with myself, least of all a place. Sure. So I spent, you know, the first three and a half years I was here looking at this as a, an experiment. Okay. I mean, I was here building a business, business successful, great people, great friends, but I didn't really let myself root. And uh, about a year ago, just about a year ago, uh, something shifted. 
guess it was really the beginning of 2017 kind of things started shifted. Um, a couple of things started to transpire around the business that started making me really look at um, go or stay. Okay. Go or stay. Do I stay or do I go? Do mm-hmm. I stay or do I go? And, you know, if I go, do I operate the business remotely? And how does that work? And who do I promote? And how do they run it? And what does that look like? And does it close? Yeah. You know, um, and it was a lot of soul searching and, uh, and that didn't feel right. Like that idea just didn't resonate with me mm-hmm. at all. And, uh, fast forward a little bit further into the spring, early summer. And I had a great occasion to become friendly with, with a couple of new friends. I met some new friends and, um, many of whom, several of whom I should say are born and raised here. Really? And we're roughly, you know, age peers, you know, within decade or so and um you know so we have a similar kind of life experience or life history but their entire entirety of their life has been here Here. Mm -hmm. and uh and one of them is a writer uh, a spectacularly talented writer and uh and you know she was kind enough to share with me some of her work that had not been published yet and some pieces that had been published in other places and the stories that I that I experienced through that put a slightly different light on things for me. And I started looking at the city a little bit more, looking at it differently, looking at the people differently, yeah. look, looking at myself differently. Right. And then October 1st happened. And that changed everything. That changed everything. Mm -hmm. I did not lose anyone that night. All of my friends were safe. None of my friends were hurt. That's good. I know people who lost people. Yeah. I know people who who are, I know people whose friends were shot, who were injured, who were there and not physically harmed, but Mm -hmm. emotionally scarred. Sure. For life, you know. Um, And I experienced what it's like to be in a city uh, under attack um, and I felt personally responsible for the city I felt um, you know I felt like these are the people I want to be in the foxhole I want to be in the foxhole with these people I looked at how the city rose beautiful I had unbelievable yeah uh, and I, at that time, I had only lived here for maybe six, six, seven months. Mm-hmm. And I had never experienced anything like that. And to see everyone just kind of chained together mm-hmm. and want to help and do anything they can, drop it all just to, to do anything. something for their community. Absolutely beautiful. And yeah. I, I could, you know, my thoughts on Vegas were extremely different to now, but I could never knock our community mm-hmm. now because yeah. of that it's beautiful and uh i mean i actually that night was at uh the last preseason home game of the golden knights of the mm-hmm. vegas golden knights mm-hmm. they were playing the san jose sharks interesting <laughs> who they're about to beat in round two of the stanley cup playoffs we hope um and so I was never really in any danger. You know, I had some errant chicken fingers during the game. I wasn't feeling particularly well. So I didn't go out to dinner after the game. 
Had I gone out to dinner with my friend after the game, we probably would have been at Mandalay because I love Libertine Social. It's one of my favorite Gosh, eateries yeah. down there. And Mandalay's remains one of my favorite hotels on the Strip. Um, so I would have been, I probably would have been on lockdown down there. Um, it was a gorgeous night. And I remember thinking, well, maybe I'll drive up the Strip. But I really wasn't feeling well. And the little voice in the back of my head said, Kathy, go home. So I did. Mm-hmm. So I went home. I went to bed, got in bed. And I sound asleep. Sound asleep at 10 o'clock when it all happened, but I woke up the next morning at 5, as I do, and uh, my phone was all blown up with, you know, iMessage, text, missed phone calls, Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, are you okay? Because everybody had seen that I was out. Yeah. And anyone who knew Vegas knows that T-Mobile is spitting distance. Yeah, right there. Um, and uh, although it was country music, which is not... A thing for me so people who know me really well were less were less convinced that I was at the Highway 91 festival but just wanted to make sure I wasn't in the area and um, and that changed it changed it changed me and um, what I realized was that when I opened my heart to this city the city opened its heart to me because Las Vegas is an interesting place. It's a very small town. Yeah. It's a very small town. And everybody knows everybody. <laughs> and which is good and bad. And, uh, I mean, but it's but it's big. I mean, it's... It's interesting. Lots of people. Yeah. And it's got all the trappings of a large city. And it's very spread out. But at its heart, it's a small town. And if you go into any small town... They will be welcoming, but slightly suspicious of strangers. Yeah. Like, who are you? And especially, you know, Vegas gets a really bad rap. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets a really bad rap. So, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting place. Yeah, I agree. And I just talked for like 35 minutes. <laughs> no, no, that's amazing. You, like, seriously, I... <laughs> put a quarter in you get a good 30 minutes of conversation <laughs> no you mean what's interesting is uh you made well one you made my job super easy but i was so ca- I, truly i was so captivated by your story one oh, i can see you. that you are such an amazing storyteller oh, thank you. you know probably attribute to your background and helping other people with their own stories and uh some of the spiritual uh adventures that you've gone on so that your story is is truly one of one of the the most amazing that I've heard. Oh, to, thank you. To be honest, yeah. Thank you. I. Uh, this is a city of uh, stupendous humans, and uh, you gotta look a little. Yeah. You no, know, you have to. Um, <laughs> do do your digging. Las Vegas does not make it easy. Mm-hmm. It does not. The city does not make it easy for you. And um, if you think about. The creatures, the indigenous creatures of the desert, uh, they don't make it easy. You know, they've got protective coating. Yeah. Venom. Venom, yeah. And and uh, you've got to have respect. Real respect for them. Definitely. And I mean, I'd like to say that the whole thing has been, you know, kind of a smooth, a smooth path. It hasn't been. You know, I brought... Um, I brought some of my baggage with me, as humans do. Yeah, that's why. Um, and had a number of uh, I had a number of missteps along the way. I um, 
Yeah, it's been a real learning lesson for me. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I was telling you a little bit, you know, when we were talking a little bit before we we uh, we started uh, formally. Oh, what was that, Inigo? Did you want to share something? <laughs> he sometimes likes My to turn. contribute <laughs> to conversations. Um, you know, all you need to do is look at our Yelp reviews to see to see who met me on a day when maybe I didn't handle something well. There have been a couple of those, and I'll I'll cop to where my role was in those for sure. There are a couple of other people who just have sour grapes or who are just unhappy, angry people. Yeah, um, you meet those people. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, and what I tried, I mean, you know, the the one thing that I was discussing with you, you know, before we started talking, you know. You know, I am so sorry that that individual is such an angry, unhappy, sad individual, like that the best thing they have to do is to come after me because we had a rough conversation three months ago. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, think about that. Yeah, really like think about what's that. What's the turmoil they're, you know, right? dealing with? It's- like, wow, I'm, I'm, and so like, what do I do now is I just try to like, hold him in gold, kind of like wrap him in some gold light and say, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, if you'd let me get in front of you, I would apologize again for what my role was in our, the friction that we had. But like at this point, it's you and I'm, I am so sorry. Yeah. I am so sorry for you that that's, because that's a lot of heavy stuff to carry. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> I'm, I, it's pretty amazing for you to, to say that and to admit that because I feel like a lot of times when we, when certain people uh, encounter somebody like that who might be going through turmoil or is kind of quick to um, anger or something like that sure. along those lines, I feel like most often some people, they don't handle it the same way. It's like a, a back and forth argument. It's like, well, that person did this to me and you know, you know, and so it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty wise to hear, <laughs> hear that from you. And I love that. And I think it's, uh, I think so, it's something we should all adopt. <laughs> well, uh, adopt or adapt and pro, you know, progress, not yeah. perfection. I yeah. just certainly, uh, human. well, and I mean, it's like, you know, we all make mistakes. We yeah. all have bad days. Yeah. I am sometimes, I like most humans who are high drive, high energy, passionate human beings. Sometimes I'm an asshole. We it all happens. Are, you know, we all are. It happens. But then the trick is, like, I, so there's two tricks to that, I, th- I think. The first is um, I don't get to say, oh, well, when I get stressed, I'm just an asshole, so now you just have to deal with me that way. Yeah. And, like, that's... and continue to be that way and have that be a thing. So, like, that's just, that's not okay. No, yeah. That's not okay. Um, and do it. Cop to it. You know, I mean, I had a, like, I had a thing happen that I'm, it's still, I'm kind of embarrassed, I'm embarrassed about it. Um, You know, I had somebody who, you know, I was having a bad day. I don't know whether they were having a bad day, but I perceived him as having cut me off in traffic. So I did what very mature, very responsible, very adult human beings do. I honked at him and flipped him off, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. Especially when you're driving the vehicle of your business. I mean, this is really not like, this is not rocket science, right? Um, and so the next day there was a knock on the door and it was it was the individual who that had happened with, who then informed me that he had had a conversation with a bunch of people who all thought that I was an asshole. I'm like, well, okay. So I'm really glad that you just told me and that there's a group of people who think I'm an asshole. 
um, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm like, did you come so that we could have a conversation and I could apologize? Or did you come just because you wanted to tell me that I was an asshole? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that's what you came to do. All right. So there you have it. That's fine. Um, but I learned a lesson from that experience. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, and, uh, in the time since I have encountered people who were clearly having a bad day where they honk at me and flip me off. And you know what? Now I'm like, I know that I didn't do anything. Yeah. I know they're having a bad day. So let's just kind of shower them in love and light and hope they go the right way. Yeah. Um, yeah. The car thing, that thing I've got locked. That that one I locked down mostly because, I mean, when I have dogs in the car, it's a whole different proposition anyway. Um, but it's just, it's just a good, it's just a good thing to do. It's just a good thing to do, especially in the neighborhood. Um, but yeah, that's been really, that's been a really interesting, uh, and I actually even had an interesting experience one day with a guy who, um, like he just, he was having a really bad day and I happened to be the person who stepped into his path and I was like, whoa, I said, so I'm really sorry. I'm like, so can I explain, like, can we have a conversation? And he slowed down and we talked about it and he goes, wow. Okay. So I'm having a really bad day and I just took it out on you. I'm really sorry. I'm like, I have done exactly what you just did. I have done. So like, I can't, I'm not going to condemn you for it because. Right. Yeah. Right. I can't do that because if I'm pointing, if what is it they say? You're pointing a finger at somebody. There's, you know, three fingers pointed right back at you. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all things that we know. And so we try to do our best. We, I try to do my best um, and just try to do my best each day and the good news is is that there are more good days than bad an increasing number of good days which is good that's awesome and um the care of the dogs is the only thing that really matters yeah you know sweeties and then in the process um you know we were talking before about you know this grounding and all of this so like how does that come around to this Mm -hmm. so um the dog trail, like how did the dog, so like where did the dog stuff come in? It's like usually people are like, so so you decided to start the business, but like did you actually know anything about dogs yeah, before right. you started the business? <laughs> or did you just like dogs? Yes, please let me know. I'd right? To... So I mean a lot of people, um, a lot of people who start dog businesses do it just because they love dogs, which is great. Yeah. Um, if that is you out there listening and you want to work with dogs and you want to start a dog place, awesome. Do it. Get yourself educated. So what you don't know, learn, Mm -hmm. you know, which is what I, you know, so for me, um, lifelong dog advocate and dog person, uh, got my first, like my dog. So like I had childhood dogs and stuff, but the first dog that was mine, I got in 1996, Okay, 1996. His name was Archie. He was a Wheaton Terrier. Um, I picked him out from a litter and I raised him and um in that process I hired someone to teach me how to work with him and how to train him so that he'd be a good dog okay so I had a trainer that I was working with and uh it was a guy I had met in a park um he was there with his dog and his dog was like it was like watching ballet yeah yeah it was like 
It was magnificent. Uh, so his name, the man was Mario, the dog was Prince. It was literally like watching ballet. It was magnificent watching the two of them. It was like one creature, one breathed in, one breathed out. And I looked at that and I said, that's what I want. I don't want a dog that's a machine. Mm-hmm. I don't want a dog that like, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. You know, I, I, want a do- I want it to be organic. I want it to look like that. So I hired him and he, it, he was, I went up to him. I asked him if he was a trainer. He said yes. And I hired him. Uh, P.S. I didn't have the puppy yet. The puppy didn't arrive for three more weeks, which he thought was weird that I was hiring a trainer before I had a dog. But <laughs> I'm a planner. So uh, about a year or so later, I was in the park with Archie and just putting him through some drills and like hiding a toy and making him find it and doing yeah. all sorts of stuff. And somebody walked up to me and said, essentially almost replicated the conversation that I had had with Mario about a year and a half before. And this was, you know, 1996. I was not really happy with tech and I wanted to do something as a hobby. And so when he asked me if I trained dogs, I said yes. That's cool. I didn't have any real experience doing it except with my own dog. Yeah. But I got myself educated real fast. Mm And part of it was on the job training and then some online stuff. And then in 2000, fast forward to 2000, there was a pretty horrific story in San Francisco. A woman was killed in the hallway of her apartment building in Pacific Heights. Mm-hmm. So fancy schmancy neighborhood with fancy schmancy buildings and fancy schmancy cars and people with big important jobs. Yeah. And um, lots of Lululemon. Oh, I don't think Lululemon existed yet, but there's a lot of Lululemon there now. Uh, Starbucks and Pete's and all of that. Yeah. And uh, lots of baby joggers. Lots of baby joggers. <laughs> and um, farmer's market baskets on a Saturday morning. And uh, she was killed in the hallway of her apartment building on a Friday afternoon, coming home from work by two dogs that lived down the hall. Jeez. And uh, turned out the dogs were vicious, actually bred to be vicious, trained to be vicious. It was on purpose. Um, The people who had custody of the dogs were actually defense attorneys, and the dogs actually belonged to one of their clients who was in prison. Wow. It's it, it's a uh, Diane Whipple was her name, and uh, if you do a search on Diane Whipple dog mauling, uh-huh. or just dog mauling San Francisco, or just her name, yeah, it'll come up. And it was uh, it made national headlines. It was a gruesome gruesome story, and uh, the so that was on a Friday at the end of the day. I remember hearing all the sirens go by because I lived several blocks away. Okay, um, but we shared a park. There's a park kind of in between the apartment buildings. I see, and. Uh, the next day when I was watching the news um, and they were doing like the perp walk video where they've got the kind of the B-roll of the people being walked in handcuffs out of the building, uh, my blood ran cold because I had had run-ins with both of those owners on two separate occasions with their dogs. And I knew there was something wrong with the dogs. I knew those dogs weren't right. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the owners were kind of punching out of their weight class with those dogs. That's at least how I perceived it at the time. Yeah. People who were outclassed by their dogs. And what I came to learn. So in the worst case scenario, they were cavalier and and sloppy. Or I should say in the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. The worst case scenario, they knew how dangerous the dogs were and had malintent. Um based on the information that we learned, I would say it is closer to the latter than it is to the former. Sure. And the run-ins that I had were, were in hindsight terrifying. At the time, I was just like stupid, you know, ignorant human with a dog that they're outclassed by. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I testified in the trial. I, I, they were finding trouble. They were having trouble finding people stepping forward because uh, everybody was scared of these people. I mean, their client was a white supremacist in a maximum security prison who has plenty of friends on the outside. Jeez. And these were not nice people. These were not good people. And people were scared. And I remember I was at a restaurant called Zuni Cafe, and I bumped into a friend who had formerly sat on the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, and we were just chatting. She's a huge dog advocate, mm-hmm. woman by the name of Leslie Katz, and we were chatting uh, about the incident. And she's saying, yeah, you know, Jim Hammer, the DA, is, you know, I was talking to him. He's having a hard time finding people to, to testify in the trial. I said, why? I said, I can't imagine that I'm the only person who had run-ins with these people. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I had run-ins with both of them. I don't even live in their building. Like big, big right. dogs, they walk them in parks. Like, they, they, like I had run-ins with both of them. These people knew the dogs were dangerous. They just didn't give a shit. Now, whether they knew the dogs would kill somebody, I don't know. Right. But they certainly didn't care. And they were certainly careless with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you're careless with a handgun, it could shoot somebody. Like sure. if you're careless with a handgun in your house and someone gets shot in your house, you may go to jail for it. You yeah. know, so yeah. you don't get to say, oh, I didn't know that that could happen. It's a weapon. You don't yeah. get to get behind the wheel of a car, inebriated, and kill somebody and not pay a penalty for it. Right. You can't say, I didn't know that might happen. <laughs> there's data. Like, yeah. there's data to yeah. show you that something bad might happen. And uh, and she said, would you would you talk to them? Would you testify? I'm like, mm-hmm. well, hell yeah. These people belong in prison. Mm-hmm. So she pulled out her cell phone and she called Jim Hammer and she said, Jim, I got somebody for you to talk to. So I'm standing at the bar at Zuni Cafe in San Francisco and I... Uh, told him a snippet of each of the stories and he said may I send one of my investigators to your you know office or your home to do a full deposition and see if you're you know like see if you know you'd you know be someone that we could use as a witness I said sure and king guy came to my office and we sat there for an hour and a half two hours you know because I'm chatty <laughs> in case that wasn't abundantly clear and uh told him both of my stories and um and so I went to LA they moved they moved the venue of the trial and because uh, they didn't think they, they could get a fair trial in San Francisco, sure. which, you know, thank God for the Constitution in some ways. And uh, not that people like this deserve fair. They're, what they did was monstrous. And a beautiful 33-year-old woman was experienced the kind of death that, uh, I mean, there were pictures, crime scene photos. Yeah. That were not used in the trial because they were deemed too prejudicial. How about that? Wow. Crime scene photos that couldn't be shown because they were deemed too prejudicial. Jeez. Parts of her body that were just unrecognizable as being the part of a human. Oh, God. She probably weighed a hundred some odd pounds, right? She was a lacrosse coach at a girls' school and fit. But one of the dogs outweighed her. So imagine being set upon by two vicious dogs who've been trained to do what they did. So that was my, that was my aha, dogs in an urban environment. Like I thought back, you know, when I encounter a dog like that today, I report him to the authorities. I also know to give him a wider berth Mm -hmm. because I know the body language. I know what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, I know what to look for between the human-dog interaction. Yeah. You know, we had a six-month-old baby killed here in Las Vegas a year and a half ago by the family dog. Oh, wow. Eight-year-old, eight-year-old dog. You know, dog pet baby was left alone with the dog. 
We don't know what happened. There was no adult in the room to see. Mom heard baby scream, comes in the room, too late, you know. This is this is serious stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you have yeah. a larger breed dog, you know, especially any of any that has any derivation of the kind of working dogs that have been designed by man to tear things apart. And you'll notice I'm not mentioning a specific breed because it yeah. is not a single breed. Yes. It is a category into which I will put, I'm not even going to say the one that everybody's going to assume I'll say, <laughs> but I would put into that same bucket German Shepherds, Rottweilers, Doberman Pinschers, Presa Canario, which these dogs in this particular attack were, Cane Corso, Boxers, along with the heretofore unnamed breed that gets a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any one of those dogs put into a certain kind of situation will result in grave and injury, dismemberment, or death. So data on dog bites doesn't actually exist. I'll say that slowly because people don't believe it. Because there are people who propose that they have, you know, pitbull statistics. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of dog bites don't get reported. Yeah, that makes sense. The context, in order to have data, what you need is a, re- a replicable scenario True. Yeah. for a data set. That's how science works. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is how science works. You create a test with a, a series of qualifiers and conditions that you can replicate and you replicate them over a certain body of information, mm-hmm. and you look at the patterns. Mm-hmm. That's data. That's actual data collection. So dog bite statistics, so breed or breed mix, scenario or condition, individuals, weather, training, breeding, health. Like just just any one of those alone would throw any data set off. Yeah. And so because of all of those X factors getting data that actually is accurate. So anyone who tells you that a particular kind of dog is more dangerous than another particular kind of dog yeah. is, is using anecdotal evidence, which sure. unfortunately is blown out of proportion. Yeah. Here's the other side of the coin. Are there breeds for which you must be more vigilant and careful because they have the potential of causing that kind of damage? Sure you do. Sure you do. Mm -hmm. Right? So if I drive a Lamborghini fast or I drive a VW Beetle fast, it's a different kind of fast. Sure. Because I have a driver's license and can drive a car does not mean I can get behind the wheel of an 18-wheeler. Yeah, right. Or even a car pulling a trailer. Mm-hmm. Or a Formula One race car. All very, very different. different. Like, it's not just turnkey hit accelerator. Yeah. And there are people who shouldn't drive certain cars because they don't have the reaction time, they don't have the vision, they don't have the physical acuity, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They shouldn't. Yeah. Right? There are people who probably would be better off not having certain kinds of dogs because if something goes sideways, it's going to go sideways real fast. And they may or may not be the right person to be prepared to have that situation, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and so 
in an urban environment, like that's the biggest danger is that mismatch. Yeah. Right. I should probably just stop talking and see no. if you actually have any questions. No, 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 no. No, it's full circle. It makes, it makes yeah. exact sense going back to uh, originally being small town here. And mm-hmm. now we have people living on top of each other and all sorts of different dogs. And I, I love you talking about the matching of the owner to the dog. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times people might not take that into consideration. And I've seen plenty of amazing dog owners who they know exactly what they're good with. Um, but then again, I've seen like, I don't know, in my own living situation, I feel bad because I do have a bigger dog and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't give you the life that I think you would deserve. So um, I love that you bring that up and you talk about that and you you take that into full consideration here at Hydrant Club. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, and sometimes people make a choice that is perhaps a slight mismatch Mm -hmm. and in many 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 of those cases and I would even say a majority of those cases if the human is open and willing to make certain adjustments to course correct for that Mm -hmm. most of that can be addressed most of that can be addressed the challenge becomes when you either have a human who is closed off to that I'm fine. I know better. You don't know what you're talking about. I know what I'm doing. My dog is fine. Yeah. Or, and those, like, I can't do anything about that. The ones that are heartbreaking for me, and I have had only a couple. I will probably have more in the course of my career, but I've had only a couple so far, is where um, it's just the wrong dog and wrong human. Mm -hmm. And you have people who really want to try. And they do. Yeah. And they do. And I, I I, actually bumped into some friends last night who they rehomed their dog. And it's a card that I won't – I don't put it on the table right away. But in a conversation I will say with a training client, so I'm going to put this card on the table and it's on the opposite end of a six-foot table. So it's not right in front of you. So like – but I want to put it there. Yeah. If we do all of the work and if it turns out that this is as good as it gets, are you prepared to rehome your dog for your dog's safety? Are you prepared to release this dog and put it into a home where it will be safe? And and there's no way to have that conversation without tears. Yeah, it's hard. And, uh, and in this particular case it was a friend who came to me with a dog that was acting up and I had and I went and I saw there's um the dog was fine with the daughter and there was the husband and wife and I could see where I could just see where there was a mismatch wonderful people wonderful people and the dog had started nipping a little bit he was a big guy and so I figured out where the the weak link was like where was the person who needed to do the most work Mm -hmm. and and I sat down with them it was not the child it was one of the adults and uh I said, so I'm going to say, and I said, say, I say this to you with love and support that who you need to be and who you need to become in order to really manage and lead this dog's behavior is going to be outside of your comfort zone by a good margin. If you want to go there or you're willing to go there, I will go to the ends of the earth with you. 
I will pull out every tool in my arsenal. I will find other trainers if we have to. I will find you books. I will find whatever we need to do. Yeah. I'm going to the mat with you on this. But think about it. Think about it because it means a quantifiable and categorical shift in your own life that you need to be prepared to make. And not like once. Like this is how you got to lead this dog. Yeah. And they thought about it. And the dog stayed in the family. They rehomed it to a family member. So the dog is still in the family. Okay. Um, but if this problem, if the problems they were having had continued to go untreated, the dog would have ended up being surrendered to a shelter or biting someone and getting euthanized. Mm-hmm. And so we need to think about it. You know, like just because you want a dog doesn't mean you should. Sometimes having friends with dogs is good yeah enough you know sometimes that's ample and sometimes the dog you want is not necessarily the dog you should have Mm. so if you're going to get a dog that's outside of your wheelhouse know that it's outside of your wheelhouse before you get into it and be prepared to do what you need to do right and and most of the time like vast majority of the time those changes can be made yeah most of the time you know unless you've got a dog that actually has a like a, like a problem, like a chemical imbalance kind of problem, which happens. It's rare, but it happens. Um, or a dog that's so deeply traumatized, like that there's just no way back. Mm-hmm. And that's also really rare. Most of them come back. Mm-hmm. Most of them come back. And most yeah. of them come back a lot faster yeah. than you'd think. And so this whole process, you know, I get to, I get the distinct honor and privilege of sharing my own flaws and lessons that I've learned as a foil for people to see that like you're just human like right. you're not breaking your dog you didn't do anything wrong you're not a bad owner right. your dog's not bad you're just human and your dog's a dog so how do you get to be the best version of yourself mm-hmm. so that your dog can be the best version of itself yeah words of wisdom right there and i get to play with puppies all day which doesn't suck yeah right (laughs) that's part of that (laughs) that's amazing yeah you are just you're like a book full (laughs) seriously i i've learned so much through our conversation um and question is when do i get to meet your dog i know yeah no i seriously now is your dog here is your dog here living in the tiny house no, so we actually live, um, we live in Centennial Hills area. Okay. So we do have a home, a um, little bit more free range than a yep. tiny home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never do that to him. <laughs> he's a big boy, though. He's 100 pounds. Oh, He stands probably about that tall. Yeah. Yeah, he's a big guy. Um, yeah, I do want to bring him in, though, because I think... I would love that, because then when you come downtown, you could just bring him here, and he yeah. could, like, come hang out with his friends. Yeah, he, he needs it. I think he... Um, we're from East Coast, as you know, so yeah. he's used to the grass and being able to walk as much as he wants, sure. but here it's a little bit harder in the neighborhoods. Um, we have, like, the smallest little dog park, but... Dog park's yeah, tough. It's my, yeah, it's my goal to bring him here, so next time um, we get a chance, I would definitely love to do that. I would love that. that. Yes. I would love that, and it's a shame that Bridger doesn't... I mean, Bridger is like... He's like, she's my new friend. I was in her lap. Now I am curled up next to her. I know, we're and best this is awesome. Up. He's like... There you oh, go. You. And don't worry, he drank water and ate after after the barfing or from earlier. You're yeah. fine. I mean, I I'll like I'll make out with my dogs all the time. So. <laughs> I mean, not literally. I'm not that 
<laughs> not that weird. No, close though. Yeah. <laughs> Damn near close. Oh my gosh. This conversation has been amazing. One, you made my job super easy. I uh, you you went everywhere I wanted to talk about. So thank you for that. And you're I, very welcome. Uh you're such an amazing storyteller. Oh, I could you. listen to you all day. I don't think I'd have to ask you one question. <laughs> I don't think at all. One question. Well, my first grade, my first grade report card actually said, uh, so my first grade teacher called me Chatty Kathy because there used to be a doll, a doll called the Chatty Kathy doll. Yeah. Super creepy. Like it was kind of like, come and play. Like the dolls that come alive in the movies and kill people with knives. Like oh, she looked yeah. kind of like that. But the first grade report card from Mrs. Mogul said, um, Kathy likes to do any project so long as she gets to talk uh, and be in charge. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> oh, I can see that. Cursed from the get-go. Cursed Not from the cursed, get-go. no. Blessed. I, yeah. Blessed from the get-go. I think you're doing amazing things, and I think oh, you have a lot of you. experience behind you that you're able to do such an amazing job with Hydrant Park and being thank able you. to take all these dogs in and really do something great for our community. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Did you want to add something, Inigo? He's like, mm, maybe. Did you want to add something? You want to talk in the microphone? Say hi. Oh, they're so He's sweet. like, well, you're not ignoring me now, so now I can stop talking because you're <laughs> looking at me. Exactly. I do want to ask you three simple questions, really easy. I like to ask everyone. Awesome. So you've been in Vegas for five years now, and when you first talked to Tony Shea, obviously you had some ideas and maybe some uh, some hesitation there. For people who aren't familiar with Vegas, what do you want to tell them? Oh, forget everything you've heard. Just come. Come and see us. It's um, The Strip exists, it's and there. all of that exists. Yeah. It is there. <laughs> and if that's what you're looking for, Awesome. But if what you're seeking is a different kind of experience, the natural beauty of, yeah, he's, he's agreeing, the natural beauty of Mount Charleston, of Red Rock, of even, I mean, I was sitting in my backyard the other morning and, you know, there were hummingbirds and um, it is a place where you must get very still Mm -hmm. and the inclination in coming to Vegas isn't to do that yeah. it's to go 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so I would encourage uh, anyone first of all I'd encourage you to come and I would encourage you to not stay on the strip stay downtown yeah. <laughs> stay at the Red Rock yes um, do an Airbnb you know stay in a neighborhood get to know the people mm-hmm. um, you will be amazed you will be amazed at what you find I agree. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Second question. Um, I know that you are going on your first vacation, you said, for a while. When yeah. you're not here and you have some free time to go out to eat or hang out with friends, what do you like to do? Oh, goodness. Well, I love to eat. So I'm an outdoor person, so any okay. opportunity that I can be outside, I am. Um, so that whether that's – I don't spend enough time at Lake Mead, and that's on my list for this year, so spend more time out and around the lake and, and the river down there as well. Uh, Mount Charleston, yeah. Red Rock, uh, as much time as outside as I can. Um, I love to I love to eat. I love to cook. Um, some favorite restaurants. Esther's Kitchen is a new favorite Ooh, of mine. Good. It's good. Um, there's a new craft beer bar, Three Sheets. It's just opened on, I think it's on South Casino Center in Charleston. Oh, brand new. Really? Okay. Um, I'll have to check that one out. Love them. Um, Public Us is another favorite 
stomping ground of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, the people here are just, I love going to the Symphony. I love going to the Smith Center. Okay. Uh, I'm a huge hockey fan, which I was before the Vegas Golden Knights. Go Knights, go! Go Knights, go! Uh, sorry, I can't. one of my dogs is wearing his bandana, his Knights bandana. Um, I love hockey. Sometimes I like on, you know, like there's not a show or something in town, just going down to the strip and just kind of wandering around and mm-hmm. watching people. Oh, and it's fun. Talking to people. Yeah. And, um, you know, people are always amazed at how friendly everybody is. I was, yeah, I was amazed when I first moved here. I was like, what? Yeah. People talk uh-huh. to each other? <laughs> yeah. And I've noticed that at hockey games, you know, I'll talk to, uh, there was, when the Calgary Flames were in town, the, uh, I was talking to some folks in Calgary jerseys, and I noticed one of the guys had a Vegas strong pin on his jersey. And I said, oh, are you from here? And he said, no, we're from Calgary. I said, oh, well, do you family here? He said, no. And I pointed at the pin. I said, well, I noticed your Vegas strong pin. And he looked at me and he said, um, what happened to your city shouldn't happen to anyone. And when we heard that the flames were coming here to play, we had to be here to show our solidarity wow. and to let you guys know that you're not alone. Amazing. I mean, who does that? Right. Yeah. And uh, I, of course, I'm, I'm tearing up now and I teared up and I looked at him and I said, is it okay if I hug you? And he's like, yes. And I looked at his wife and I said, can I hug you too? And Aww. we had this whole conversation yeah. and, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a heart to this city that uh I'm sorry I'm rat holing again I just no, I love that no. I love I've come to love this place so much it's like in a way that I didn't know that I could I love that yeah it's home yeah finding the meaning of home yeah yeah for sure it's yeah it's amazing to talk to people who have found it here yeah. and I love it I love this community so much and thank yeah. you for being such an amazing person and thank you well you had a third question you had a third I question do though it's not as fun but for people who are interested in hydrant club or learning more about you where can you direct them so this is like the small print at the end of the medical yes. of like this is like the disclaimer at the medical end so <laughs> so we're super easy to find so um if humans want to come and, ch- and check us out and come take a tour without your dog because you know of course dogs can only come if they've been screened um uh you can call the office, uh, 7-721-9663 is our office number, 7-721-9663. Uh, we are on the web at hydrantclub.com. Easy enough to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Instagram and Twitter f- feeds are both, you know, at sign Hydrant Club and Facebook uh, just a backslash after facebook.com hydrant club so those are the kind of the social spots yes. to find us if you're interested in having your dog come to the hydrant club the first best place to start is on our website there's an application there's a big button at the top that says apply okay it's a short application we actually just shortened it up a lot uh, once we receive the completed application then we ask you for the health records okay and then and then that process starts for some people, because there is, there's like, there, we're not the cheapest game in town, right? So we are, we are one of, we are the, I think the most expensive daycare and one of the more expensive boarding facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, when people come here, they get to understand why. But what I always suggest for people, and I encourage people to do, is before you make the financial commitment, come meet us. Yeah. Right. 
call the office, go to the website, send us an email, say, hey, I'd like to come in and take a tour. We'll schedule for you to come in. You can meet the staff. You can meet some members. You can see how we operate the place. And if you like what you see, then we'll go through with the process. If you, after seeing it, maybe it's not a fit for your dog. And that's cool too. So, um, so yeah, come on down and see us. That's amazing. Kathy, thank you so much. I had a wonderful conversation oh, thank with you. you Thanks for coming in. Learned so much. And thank you for the hospitality and letting me stay here at Hydric Club and do this with My pleasure. Hopefully we'll see you again if you need a quiet studio. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Kathy Brooks uh, of the Hydrant Club. I am so lucky to have been able to have met her and sit down with her and learn so much about um, her life and what brought her here to Vegas and what's keeping her here and why she's so involved with, uh, with our community. So I can only say thank you. I truly value this conversation so much. It was uh, such a wonderful opportunity to be able to learn more about another amazing community member um, and business owner who's really contributing to our downtown community here in Vegas. So thank you so much. And it was truly wonderful to be able to meet you finally. So thank you so much, Kathy and everyone at the Hydrant Club. I will definitely be back soon. I'm super excited to uh, hopefully bring my little doggo with me. And by little, I mean big doggo. But um, I hope you learned a lot from this conversation. I know I sure did. Uh, I told Kathy afterwards that I could honestly sit there and chat with her for another four hours and just be even more amazed about the amazing stories and and uh, wisdom that she really has she's she's like an open book and by open book I mean she just has so much knowledge uh, that was so valuable um, and I will definitely take take her stories as as a, as a lesson. So I'm so happy that I was able to have this conversation and I'm really glad that you all were able to learn more about her too. Um, I can go on forever about how amazing Kathy is, but I hope that you enjoyed it. Can't wait to bring you some more exciting interviews. Uh, as always, if you haven't yet already, um, please make sure that you do subscribe to Socially the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud um, and leave me a review because that's how more people are able to find the podcast. All right, guys, I hope you have a wonderful Friday and a wonderful weekend and I will see you next Friday. Bye.